Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is Nenni Lava, the prophetess of Madagascar, which hopefully already intrigues you to no end and you're dying to hear more about. But we will also be using her story as a springboard to returning to some of the issues that we discussed in our episode on Father and Son Bloomheart last year, uh, particularly as relates to questions of exorcism, healing, miracles, sin, forgiveness, and so forth. So the reason why we are picking this topic now is because uh, I have just had a book come out co-edited with James B vegan, who was a a missionary to Madagascar for 18 years. And uh, Dad, do you remember when we first met Jim Vegan many years ago? It was not under the happiest of circumstances and had nothing to do with Madagascar. It was in 1996 um, when uh, my mother uh, was uh, hospitalized, as it turned out, for her final illness. And uh, Jim Vegan was the pastor in Ascension Lutheran Church in Binghamton, New York, where my mother was hospitalized. And so he provided a great deal of pastoral care to us. And uh, we became acquainted that way, not also because Jim was a pastor of the Slovak Zion Synod at that time, which I was also a member of. So we became uh, friends under those sad circumstances. Yeah, I remember very clearly how how kind he was to us in that very, very hard time. I was in the middle of college. You guys were still living in Slovakia. So there was also the missionary bond because he was just back after this very long stay. And he's kept up very strong ties there. He's fluent in Malagasy. He taught at their seminary. So that was one of my earliest connections to Madagascar. I do remember seeing pictures of the exotic animals when I was a little kid. Fortunately, the absurd Disney movie called Madagascar had not yet come out, which doesn't even have anything to do with Madagascar. That bugs me. <laughs> no end. But anyway, <laughs> um, many years later, fast forward, I had no expectation that I would ever visit Madagascar, but um, I did first for, I was invited to teach there through a, a Malagasy acquaintance that I made. By the way, Mal- Malagasy is the proper adjective. Um, I know that sounds weird coming from Madagascar. I think it derives from the French version. But anyway, and um, so I taught there um, for a couple weeks. Andrew and I went and took our son and his parents along. And then I ended up going again just a couple years ago for the Lutheran Pentecostal Dialogue. So I've been there twice. Okay, but I still haven't gotten around to mentioning the book (laughs) that Jim Vegan and I co-edited. So the book that just came out is entitled Nenni Lava, Prophetess of Madagascar. It's uh, published by Whip and Stock. We will, of course, have a link in the show notes and strongly urge you to check that book out. Uh, But it's about this extraordinary woman of the 20th century uh, who started the fourth revival, major revival of the Malagasy Lutheran Church. And it is still going to this day. It started on August 1st, 1941 and is still going. So obviously it is a different kind of revival from the kinds that Americans have. And before I even went the first time to Madagascar, 
Madagascar, somebody advised me, oh, when you're there, be sure to ask about Neni Lava. She was really important in forming the spiritual lives of so many Lutheran Christians there. You'll want to find out more about her. And indeed, when I went there to teach, I just, you know, I, I saw a plaque with her name on it. And I was like, okay, so that's that's who it is. And then with the students I was teaching, I think we had a couple hundred in our they just gave us the whole seminary for the week that we were there. Um, I, we just asked everyone, you know, do you know about Nani Lava? And everybody did. And everybody had a story. And some of them, like their parents were, she was their like matchmaker for their parents and um, <laughs> healing stories of all kinds. And that's who inspired them to become um, shepherds, which is their term for exorcists. So, um, yeah, anyway, uh, so I was quite intrigued then. And then when I got a chance to go back just a couple years ago, I found in the church bookstore a very flimsy little volume with a French translation of an original Malagasy, for lack of a better term, hagiography of Neni Lava. It was her story as told to uh, another Lutheran pastor who wrote it down. And then the rest of the book was... um, uh, uh, personal witnesses of people who had been shaped by her. And so I brought this home with me and I was just so intrigued and fascinated from my larger hagiography project that I went through this French and translated it into English. And then I've, since then, we, you know, I'd, I'd crossed paths with Jim Vegan again. So I just sent it to him and said, you know, should we do something with it? And out of that came the book, which, Dad, you have just read. So why don't you start by giving us your first reactions to this book? Well, I think that this would be quite a tonic for a bored, exhausted, alienated, and questioning Lutheran pastor under today's depressing spiritual circumstances, whether in Europe or in the United States or Canada, in North America, that is what I like to say, call Euro-America. If you're a pastor who's thinking, you know, what's the point? Why do I keep beating my head against the wall? Where is this going? What's this all about? And the thought of revival or revivalism makes you nauseous because it brings up (laughs) images in your head of uh, Billy Graham crusades or the anxious bench and other manipulative uh, procedures or just the whole esprit of, um, of kind of off-the-wall evangelicalism, if, if, if that's where you're at, take a dive into, a real dive into an alien culture and take a good look at the life and ministry of Neni Lava. Uh, because as we'll talk about in this episode, it uh, confronts us with a very, in my view, a very bracing but also ultimately very positive challenge. Well, great. You know, this is actually the first time you and I have talked about this book since you got your copy. So I'm I'm thrilled <laughs> to hear you react so so positively and take it as a tonic and not just as sheer lunacy. And um, I, I think we should just give a fair warning to people. This is really going to stretch your sensibilities. But that's a good thing, isn't it? Isn't that what we say is so wonderful about diversity? And encountering the other and understanding uh, alien worldviews and thoughts. And, and we, after all, we are members of a of one world communion together with the Malagasy Lutheran Church, no? 
Uh, absolutely. Obviously, that's why I wanted this book to come to a Western audience, and I wanted it to be um, interpretable for Westerners. And that's what you know I tried to do it at the in my final essay, which we'll get back to. But let me just follow up on your praise of diversity by saying cultural appropriation is the only way human beings have ever gotten better. It is the one thing we are brilliant at, which is learning from others and taking what they they do and then doing it ourselves and finding out how we need to adapt it and change in order to suit our circumstances. So, all right, with that, um, how about I start with just a a brief um, overview of her life? And I think as I go through it, Dad, we can talk about why we should not interpret her story as sheer lunacy, but what actually makes it a credible story of a genuinely Jesus-centered and spirit-driven minister of the gospel in her setting. Okay, let's go. All right. So Neni Lava, that is actually not her given name. Her given name was Vula Havana. Neni Lava is actually a derogatory term, meaning tall mother, because she was extremely tall for a Malagasy woman. But kind of like with the terms Lutheran or Christian, she ended up adopting the derogatory term and it became the term of love and endearment that she is known by. So we're just going to call her Neni Lava, even though the name came later in her life. So she was born in a rural area of Madagascar, probably around 1920, the dates aren't exactly um, certain. Her father was a kind of uh, diviner, magician, or um, and a kind of local king. Uh, from what the students told me when I was there, the kind of um, pre-Christian paganism there was very much oriented towards inviting in evil spirits in order to gain power over others. And so that's the kind of thing that her father did. She was scornful of it from a very early age, would actually um, humiliate her father in front of people coming to buy his services. And she also started having very powerful um, dreams and visions from an early age, heard a voice calling out to her. Um, this is before she has any contact with the gospel at all. It, you know, Christianity is in Madagascar, but it has not come to her town or her people. Uh, extraordinarily, she said that as a young girl, she had a dream of a man who would come and wash her feet. And um, But she didn't know who he was or how to get to her. She didn't know how to respond to the voices. She longed to know the one true God above all gods, um, but didn't really make any progress. Uh, It seems like she had a a kind of sad and lonely childhood because of this intense spiritual encounter, but no direction or outlet for it. She also completely refused to marry, uh, though she was very desirable, being the daughter of this powerful local man, and finally agreed, um, who knows why exactly, to marry a man 40 years her senior. So she was 20 and he was 60. He was a widower with children. And it just so happens he was a Lutheran catechist. So this is one of the, the lay offices in the Malagasy Lutheran Church. And in order to marry him, she had to become a Christian. So she memorized her catechism in two weeks. So let's just say American confirmants have no excuse not to master it in two years. She got it down in two weeks (laughs) and um, was baptized and they married. And so that meant that she got um, pulled into the ministry that her husband and some of his associates were doing, some who were working more explicitly as exorcists. So the, the kind of a 
crisis moment that changes her life happens again, as I said, on August 1st, 1941. So she's a very young woman still. And a neighboring exorcist is trying to cast an evil spirit out of her stepdaughter. And it's not working. (laughs) Uh, Even though this is an experienced exorcist and he is praying and calling on the name of Jesus, it's not working. Neni Lava is watching this unfold. And then she hears a voice behind her say, you go there and do it. And this is very interesting. Every time Jesus told Neni Lava to do something, she always refused. She was much more like Zechariah than like Mary <laughs> and always said, no, 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 this can't be. Um, but uh, Jesus did not give her any choice and kind of pushed her forward. So she held the girl and prayed over her and they had a mighty struggle. But in the end, uh, the spirit gave up grip on the stepdaughter. And this created such a uh, sensation or conversion, even among the catechists and exorcists who were already working. And they all felt this powerful calling upon them to, and, and the charge of Jesus to go out and set free all of Madagascar from the demons. And that was it. And whoa, so from that whoa, point, whoa. what? Whoa, whoa. Whoa. Let me interrupt I was just you. getting started. I know, but be, you're going to lose our audience here. Because you were just talking as if as if Jesus spoke to Neni Lava. Isn't that what you were saying? Jesus was telling Neni Lava, you go and do it? How what what's what is this? Jesus is talking <laughs> to Neni Lava? Okay, so yes, I am using her her language and her hagiographer's language, who says that the visions and voices she was hearing all through her childhood finally revealed themselves to her fully after her baptism and calling her forward to work as an exorcist. And as I will continue to detail as we go forward, she understood that it was Jesus who was directing her every step of the way, and she would not do anything without his explicit direction and uh, giving her the words that she was to say. So what's so hard about that, Dad? Okay, so <laughs> now the voices that spoke to her from childhood have identified themselves, and she understands this voice to be the voice of Jesus, correct? Yeah, it's just the, it was just one voice, and it is the voice of Jesus. And in fact, she, she um, asked Jesus to help her distinguish him from other spirits, and he, I believe, revealed the wounds in his hands as evidence that it was really he, which is, uh, I would say— just exactly what you would want the true Jesus to show you is the wounds in his hands. Okay, let's go on. Okay. So basically from that point until her death in 1998, so this is an almost 60-year ministry, she and her her spiritual entourage uh, traveled all over rural Madagascar and preached. Um, but um, before this really took off. She reports having kind of a a time of of training and testing um, before she was released to public ministry. And this is probably of all the the wild things, the wildest part of all. So she had a vision of being called up to heaven and saw the place prepared for her, but also saw the place of deepest mourning and sorrow for those who refused the call. She had um, another period where Jesus instructed her in the content of the scripture. Uh, She, as far as I know, remained illiterate her whole life, but had vast swaths of the Bible committed to memory. That is not at all unusual, actually, in non-literate cultures, that their oral memory is so excellent that memorizing it is really not a problem. Uh, She also said that Jesus instructed her in multiple foreign languages, so she was able to speak in English and French and Norwegian 
and various other things from the direct instruction of Jesus. Uh, she continued to have powerful visions sometimes with choices involved that seemed to be kind of testing, like Jesus would show her a variety of objects and ask her to select one. And this revealed something about her highest commitment being to the work of Jesus and his kingdom. And and then the fight, uh, then uh, she was told that she would die and rise again. So she gathered her followers. Uh, she expired on a Friday night and uh, lay as dead for the next day. And on Sunday morning, as she prophesied, she rose again and she preached on 1 Corinthians 15. Very fittingly, one might <laughs> wow. say. Right. And then finally, the last stage of this whole thing was the battle with the beast. And so she had this visionary, just physical wrestling match with a hideous monster. And um, again, Jesus said, said, I will give you the power. You will be victorious over it. But this is part of your training. You have to fight it yourself. And she did. And she was victorious. And I have to say, I was stunned by how similar it was to Perpetua's vision of her battle with the, uh, with the yes. Goliath figure before she went out to the to fight in the or to, to be killed in the the gladiatorial arena, uh, you know, and that's what, like 1700 years earlier, I think it's extremely right. unlikely that that story was circulating in Madagascar and got appropriated by Neni Lava. It seems to me two fascinatingly weird independent attestations of, of uh, warrior women in the spirit fighting monstrous beasts. Wow. All right, let me pause there <laughs> because, again, I may have lost people with the craziness. Uh, why don't you offer some comments before I go on? Well, um, first of all, I think, you know, like a good anthropologist, we have to bracket our own worldview with its presuppositions and simply listen, intently listen. This is also good hermeneutics, you know, that uh, you listen to what another is saying until you can uh, repeat it back uh, to such a person and they would say, wonderful, that's just right, that's exactly what I mean. I couldn't have said it better myself. And so I think that that would be the first step here is just to accept this testimony at face value. Now, we have certain Western baggage here that has a lot to do with the discovery and treatment of mental illness. And we're going to get into those issues, I think, a little bit later in any Lava's story. But uh, for us, you know, and this has been as recent as uh, therapies to cure people of homosexual orientation, which uh, have done a great deal of psychological damage uh, to teenagers and been a factor in teenage suicides among people who are discovering a homophile orientation and so forth. And so when religious ministries substitute superstition uh, for science-based medicine, you know, lots of red flags go up flying up in the air. And we have to acknowledge that and be aware of that that's part of our cultural situation when, incur when encountering this uh, message from Madagascar. I guess that would be the first comment I would like to make. All right. Very good and well taken. And um, I think it's important then, as I 
move now to the next part is to to signal that this really wild stuff, like her supposed death and resurrection and her battle with the beast, this is all kind of preparatory. And what happens from here on out is much more settled. <laughs> and um, also that she was not accepted at that early stage as being a prophetess or even a legitimate minister. There was an extremely long testing period within her own church among people who were, let's say, more culturally disposed to accept such stories than we are before she was really recognized and came to be, you know, venerated in a sense, even in her own lifetime. And I think that's important. Even when I was there, people said to me, believe me, we didn't believe her at first. <laughs> we we took a time to find out if she was really of Jesus or if something else was going on here. So what happened basically is a ministry formed around her. It's based in this town called Ankara Malaza um, in Madagascar. And that's still kind of like the, uh, the, the mothership of this movement. And it's where every year on August 1st, in commemoration of her call, the new shepherds or exorcists are consecrated to their ministry. And it has a very set and even liturgical pattern to it. So already when she was starting, she would come to a town with her group. They would um, generally go to the church. Uh, there was always a church-centered revival. It wasn't um, trying to pull people out of the church or be at odds with the church. She would uh, preach on a passage of scripture. Uh, it was always scriptural interpretation for her. Um, she would call people to recognize their need to repent and be forgiven of their sins. Uh, usually there would be some kind of strong emotional response on the part of the people. And then there would be highly personalized ministry with um, laying on of hands, uh, sending out the spirits, praying for people, um, and engaging in pastoral conversation with them. A lot of the book or uh, this section of the book details actually her pastoral conversations with people. Um, she's often kind of given a gift of knowledge into what they were hiding, the sin that they were sitting on or didn't want to admit to or their doubts or whatever. And she would give each person at the end a passage of scripture that would be like their special verse to, to comfort them and to, to carry them forward. Um, it was interesting that she worked as much among people who were already baptized Christians as those who were not. So she was going into areas that had already been evangelized. But um, as I think I said in our Bloomheart episode, revival always starts with people who are already Christian. It's intrinsic to the gospel pattern, not not a sign of like failure that the church has completely not done its job, but it's, it's an internal process. So it did not seem strange to her or to anyone else that that already existing Christians would be attracted and renewed by her ministry, as well as people who were still in the animistic religious practice. There are a few encounters reported with Muslims, Hindus, some Chinese people as well, I think. Um, and basically, this was just what she did for the rest of her life and what she ultimately trained other people to do. She was never wealthy. She always lived under quite humble circumstances. She was, I think, quite exhausted a lot of the time by just the sheer throngs of people coming to see her. Uh, she never attempted, though, to gain any kind of power or control the church. Um, she made a, you know some comments about the political situation. She had a big fancy church built at one point, um, but there never seemed to be any indication that this was a self-aggrandizing ministry on her part. It was very self, uh, self-giving and self-sacrificing. And I think that is 
is what ultimately won people over, including a, a not inconsiderable number of skeptical missionaries who were finally able to say, you know, what, what she is doing is genuinely calling people to renewed life in Christ or new life in Christ Those who, for those who weren't Christian at all. And she was judged to be legitimate. Yeah, really interesting, Sarah. I also see a lot of parallels between Nenilava's career and certain renewal movements that I'm aware of in Western Christian history. Uh, often, these renewal mo movements organize themselves as what we call parachurch organizations that try to, uh, st uh, they don't, they're not hostile to the church, but because the church bureaucracies can often be so hidebound, uh, so, so stick in the mud, uh, so protective of their own institutional interests and turf, uh, uh, motivated Christians, often led by lay people like Royova, uh, simply uh, set up a kind of a parallel structure. Uh, Bible societies, mission societies in the 19th century are ex examples of this. In Slovakia, the Royova sisters uh, were really also women, lay women, who led a kind of uh, a renewal revival movement uh, which tackled the plague of alcoholism uh, in 19th century Central Europe. Uh, and they set up these kind of, like the, uh, what did you call them? The Tobies? These, Tubi, uh, spiritual, Tubi, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, these spiritual retreat centers or something like that. Uh, where their ministries could be carried out. Again, not over against the uh, institutional church, but in parallel to it. So they're called like para-church organizations. Uh, a lot of times uh, with diminishing resources, scarcity of funding, and uh, uh, jealousy over the danger of sheep stealing and things like that, Pastors uh, become very suspicious of these kinds of things when, in fact, the story of Nenilava shows us how they can actually be uh, a source of inspiration to the institutional church and um, something that the institutional church can institutionalize, if I can put it that way. Right. So the Malagasy Lutheran Church actually has a department of revivals that looks after all four revivals, the earliest one dating back to, I think, the 1890s. <laughs> but it's interesting, actually, in that respect, the, the Malagasy Lutheran Church is really an outlier in African Christianity because the story has almost been consistently one of mission churches and then splits as the indigenous um, groups decide to break off on their own because the missions, as, as grateful as they are for bringing the Bible, bringing the gospel, they're not able to adapt to what the people on the ground need. And there there is a unique power in this particular story of the insistence of Neni Lava of not departing from the church, of working in tandem with the church and the church's willingness to take the time. I think it's important to say how much time they took to discern. They tolerated her, but they didn't bless her for a long time. And considering how easy it is for someone to come along and clear claim to have a word from Jesus and a vision and a calling and, you know, how many of them turn out to be genuinely false prophets. 
that sounded funny, genuinely false prophet, um, <laughs> that it's it's wise to take time. But they were able to take the time that they needed for the revival and the church to work hand in hand and continue to be. This is the entire source of growth in the Malagasy Lutheran Church is through this kind of, of um, lay ministry of the shepherds and the revivals, but it is always directed towards the church. It gets people into church. It's where their pastors come from. So it's a, a, a really impressively integrated model. Right. And you just mentioned here, once again, the office of exorcist, which you said they call shepherds, right? And, and that has been actually officially recognized. There's a Department of Revival. There's a church office of, of being a shepherd. And there's a preparation and training for that, right? Oh, yeah. You, if you want to become a shepherd, you do two years intensive apprenticeship with other shepherds under the supervision of a pastor. And you cannot get paid for your shepherding work. Pastors get a salary, but shepherds do not. They cannot. It's part of their, their vow or consecration. I see. And this is in a place that is super poor. <laughs> so right, the fact yeah. that people are willing to give their lives to this ministry when the destitution is such a severe problem in Madagascar, I think, again, is is witness to the spiritual power and that they, they really understand that they are fixing something wrong with this ministry um, in a way that is even more urgent than the monetary crisis. Yeah, that's impressive, I think, right there. Uh, just one other comment on what you've said so far. Uh, I was struck reading the story of Nani Lava that during the uh, anti-colonial struggle, the struggle for Madagascar's independence from French colonial rule, uh, Nani Lava, uh, who was not a, otherwise a very political person at all, uh, stood up for the um, for the uh, independence movement, right? And supported mm-hmm. it publicly. Yeah, yeah, she did. That was one of the few times that she really spoke out politically. So there's the, the kind of, she was dedicated to her spiritual ministry, but in the time of crisis, she was not afraid to take a public political stand, correct? Exactly, exactly, yeah. And as we all know, that that disentanglements of um, African countries from the colonial powers was a very messy and nasty business. So it was a risky place to speak out for sure. Well, let me just now wrap up her life story and then we'll we'll turn to interpreting her story for our time and place. Um, so she, one of the long-term impacts of her ministry was the founding of, you mentioned these tubies. A, a tubi is like a spiritual camp center. And it was a place all over, uh, there were lots of them all over Madagascar where people in spiritual need could go, be cared for, get medical care, get prayer, worship, food, a place to sleep. And um, there's a, a huge one in Ankara, Malaza, where it is the center of her movement, but also in the capital city and uh, again, all over the place. And what's quite interesting is that those have been the um, connecting point for medical mission work and the spread of medical and psychological services across Madagascar. They were essentially already places where people came for care, spiritual care. And Neni Lava was absolutely insistent that shepherds could not prevent the people under their care from seeking medicine or medical care. So she did not in any way separate out or or put a false um, alternative between spiritual healing and physical healing. She was all in favor of medicine and hygiene 
hygiene and whatever else. And so the Lutheran Church is a major source of medical care in the country as a result of that. It's also the main place where psychological and psychiatric care is given. Um, This is a a little bit more controversial because, uh, again, due to the extreme poverty of Madagascar, there is just nowhere near enough treatment options for people. So often what happens is people who are, you know, we'd say genuinely out of their minds, like have some really severe debilitating mental illness, will just live full time in the tubies. And um, because, again, of limited options, they're sometimes um, like chained, like not not like in a... um, a jail cell, but like they'll have like a little um, ankle bracelet with a chain that lets them walk around, but keeps them like um, fixed in place so that they can't leave the tubi. Westerners who visit that tend to be horrified. I certainly was the first time and had to um, allow myself to be informed that, you know, we do not have nice fancy hospitals with tons of well-paid nurses and medicine and restraints. This is what we have and this is what we have to do. And it's the best we can to keep people safe because if we don't do this, they'll run free and get hit by a car or harm other people. So, but the the shepherds actually live in these tubies with the mentally ill. It's not like they're abandoned there, like, you know, the Gerasene demoniac who, uh, you know, is chained up among the tombs. Uh, they actually live with them and care for them on a regular basis. So again, under very non-ideal circumstances, um, her, her tubies have been a major source for all kinds of care for people, not only spiritual, but also physical and psychiatric. Um, And then the last thing I just want to say about her is that um, I think in the 80s or towards the end of her life, when she was quite a bit older, she told her followers that um, Jesus had been prompting her for decades to get herself crowned as a prophetess in his service. And she had always refused to do it because she felt that nobody would believe it and it would undermine her ministry. But now that she was fully accepted, she felt she could no longer refuse to obey Jesus' command. Um, I I think readers will enjoy this about her book is how often she argues back with Jesus. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so she had um, uh, an actual crown um, uh, out of metal formed for her and uh, an ephod, like a a priestly breastplate, according to Aaron's in the Old Testament. And um, some of her pastor friends and followers developed a liturgical service for her coronation as prophetess. And she received the ephod and the crown. And um, Again, there was a lot of fear that this would lead to her getting above her station. But once it was over, it was over. The Those holy relics are set aside now for people to see. And um, she just continued to go on with her ministry after that. Um, so again, controversial. Some of the missionaries really did not like that very much. But again, it did not seem to lead to a power play on her part. And she insisted it was a matter of um, obedience. So to this day, it seems that most people in Madagascar have no problem saying that she was truly a prophetess called by Jesus and appropriately crowned for her service and appropriately venerated in, of course, good evangelical Lutheran fashion to this day. Wow. Quite a story, Sarah. <laughs> uh, I hope you've uh, whetted the appetites of listeners to uh, re- uh, uh, read the book and, and see for themselves. Okay. Well, and, and I should just add that um, the Jim Vegan's contributions um, detail the later part of her life that isn't covered by the hagiography and also talks quite a bit about medical services in Madagascar. So again, those who are deeply disturbed by what they've heard, um, he will help give you a, a good framework for it. 
So, Dad, to finish out the latter part of this episode, I think we I think we need to talk about evil spirits. What do you say? <laughs> sure, Among why other not? things. <laughs> All right. Well, since I've done a lot of the talking so far, why don't why don't you start? Where do you what what do you think is going on here? Well, I, you know, again, I, first of all, I'd like to lift up Jim Vegan's contributions to the discussion because I think that I, I found them very, very helpful because he acknowledges how strange and uh, uh, weird uh, his encounter was with these uh, uh, exorcists and the evil spirits that they were uh, 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 rebuking and casting out of people and so forth and so on. And he, in the book, he records his struggle to come to understand this kind of thing. And he lists uh, two authors, two Western authors, whose insights really helped him. And I think I want to read this quote from Tillich and another quote from M. Scott Peck, uh, because I think they're, they're really uh, very useful, very helpful to try to for, for us to try to think about this. Now, anybody who knows Paul Tillich's theology understands uh, that um, he was opposed to Boltman's program of demythologization, which simply wipes out the story of the uh, demons and demonic possession in the New Testament uh, and regards them as fables of a pre-scientific age and so forth and so on. And Tillich in, in, prefers to demythologization what he calls deliteralization. And deliteralization does not wipe out the story, but seeks to try to interpret it. And uh, 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 Jim Vegan tells us that he uh, uh, read a sermon by Paul Tillich, which was delivered in 1955, on Matthew 10, 8, in which Jesus tells his disciples to heal the sick and cast out the demons. And so Tillich in the sermon said, Why have these assertions that were so central at the time of the gospel was first preached lost their significance for our own period? The reason, I believe, lies in the words healing and casting out demons that have been misunderstood as miracle healing based on magic power and magic self-suggestion. There is no doubt that such phenomena occur. They happen here and everywhere else in the world. But it is an abuse of the name of Christ to use it as a magic formula. Nevertheless, the words of our text remain valid. They belong to the message of the Christ. And they tell us something that belongs to the Christ as the Christ, the power to conquer the demonic forces that control our lives, mind, and body. End quote. I think that's a very powerful passage uh, from a theologian who had the reputation of being the one who most wanted to relate the Christian message to the current cultural context. Uh, to insist upon this aspect of healing the sick and casting out the demons as integral to the uh, message of the gospel. Maybe I should pause there, Sarah, and, and get your reaction to that quotation that Vegan found so helpful from Paul Tillich. 
yeah, you know, I've never spent any time with Tillich, but that certainly did not add up with my preconceived notions about what Tillich would approve. Um, but I guess for me, it's so hard as an American not to just start with all the horrible versions of of um, accounts of evil spirits and exorcism, like we talked about the those novels I read that that. Uh, commended spanking little girls in order to get the evil spirits out of them. Like, no, wrong. And so even how to engage with this in a um, non-abusive manner seems almost impossible. But I think Tillich's point about the need for healing never goes away. And it doesn't matter if you are an extremely well-fed, comfortable American who is completely protected from the consequences of your own actions. You're still broken and you hurt and you need healing. And that the power of of Jesus Christ, if if Jesus Christ actually is Lord, then that is a, a true presence and power, um, even if the particular form it takes, again, the, the culturally sculpted form of the affliction is going to be different. So I, I think actually Tillich's concern can be very helpful here in truly discerning the spirits, not just the evil spirits from the good spirits, but also the spirit of those in the name of Christ who would use knowledge or power over evil spirits actually to assert their own power over others and the right use of that power in order to release people from their affliction. Right. And I think that's what Tillich is getting at when he talks about using the name of Christ as a magical incantation. Uh, and that's something, of course, that the Bloomharts were also very keen on, uh, especially the younger Bloomheart who became disgusted with the abuses of the healing ministry uh, in his father's own uh, uh, a parachurch organization, right? So, right, right. So anyway, what that I think what that gets to is that uh, we are to, the gospel is to deliver us not only from the guilt of sin, but also from the power of sin. The gospel is the forgiveness of our guilt, but it's also the liberation from the dominating powers of sin and death personified, of course, in the figure of the Satan, uh, 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 who uh, roams about the earth like a lion uh, seeking to devour us. And I think a lot of people in our contemporary Western culture are experiencing social life as extraordinarily predatory, uh, that they're constantly exposed to uh, life and death competition. Uh, certainly the young people whose lives uh, are are being forged on social media, uh, are experiencing all sorts of uh, uh, bullying, what's the word, and trolling, and so forth and so on. And let alone attempts to seduce and 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 hijack their lives. So these kinds of uh, of demonic forces, as Tillich put it, which 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 try to get their claws inside of our ourselves, insert themselves into our psyches, where they can become voices of extraordinary uh, negativity until they reach the point of saying, you're so damn worthless, you're no good, you ought to just destroy yourself. I mean, that would be the victory of the devil, wouldn't it? To convince a good creature of God uh, to, uh, to self-destruct. 
Or to just prey on other people, because what else is there? Prey upon or be preyed upon. You know, I think, again, the, the bridging point here for us is that other than the description of the beast that Nenilava battled with early on, and that was definitely like a visionary battle, not a physical one on this earth. Um, there's no description of the spirits. Like you don't get any taxonomy of spirits or they don't have names. There, you know, there's there's nothing like that. And in that respect, it's it's very much like scripture and the gospel accounts in which there are spirits, but they're, you know, other than legion, you know, like there's no there's no real interest on the part of scripture in the ontology of evil spirits. They're simply there and they're a problem and you're to be delivered from them. And as I reflected on that, I thought, you know, we we in the West use metaphorical language to talk about the same thing. So like in um, family systems, you know, you there's like, a, you know, something that's passed down through the generations. What is it? I mean, you can make a metaphor out of it of, you know, inherited patterns of behavior or whatever, but it's not like a thing that you can hang on to. Or you can talk about team spirit in a positive sense, but you can also talk about like a nationalistic spirit or the zeitgeist that takes over people and and drives them or, you know, mob hysteria, mass hysteria or mob mentality. Like we have these these parallel uh, formulations that we use to talk about essentially invisible and hostile but very real forces that shape our lives rather beyond our control or desire. And so if we look at it that way, I don't think our experience is all that different. We And um, in either case, to get overly interested in the, the ontology of the evil thing is probably not where our, uh, our interests are best directed. What I, I, and, and I guess the final thought fruit of my thought experiment was, would I be better equipped to fight evil if I knew more about what it was or how it worked? And I realized like, no, actually, there's no advantage there. All I need to know is that Jesus Christ, my savior, battles against these and that I too can resist them in his name. That's enough. You don't actually need to know more. And it seems to me efforts to know more, to peer into these things are almost always corrupting. And so the fact that Nenny Lava's story for all its witness to evil spirits does not theorize or analyze them is is actually very helpful for our world. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with everything you said, and I think that's very helpful. Ontological agnosticism, I think, is the as Jim Vegan actually says, is is the correct approach uh, to uh, Satan and the demons. Uh, I don't know what they are, but I certainly know that they are some kind of superhuman, super individual forces uh, that are afflicting people, uh, even to the depths of their own uh, personal being. Uh, I think we can say something like that uh, in a pragmatic vein. But I do think that there was one thing I noticed in the story of Nani Lava that I think is salient here is that uh, in the traditional animistic culture of Madagascar, where the belief in these uh, ghouls and demons is pervasive, uh, there was a lot of conjuring, there was a lot of dealing uh, with these occult powers in which people, people wanted to uh, make relationships with uh, spirits in order to enhance their own power or to work uh, curses or m malice upon other human beings and so forth. And this is where I think finally you do get an intersection 
between sin, uh, the guilt of sin, and the power of sin, which we should return to. Mm-mm. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and but I, it does need the further refinement. So this is going more from my own experience, but what the um, the students I met at the seminary told me is that for those among the Malagasy who actually had had direct traffic with the evil spirits through their animistic practices, then indeed they needed not one, but usually multiple exorcisms to set them free from their entanglement with that evil. And that was probably one of the, the origin points of the older exorcism ministries. But Nenny Lava spends so much time among ordinary church people too, more more and less committed, um, people who have are who have not actually spent a lot of time trafficking with evil. And um, I remember when my, I was there for the Lutheran Pentecostal dialogue, we had a lot of conversations about that because a big issue within Pentecostalism is whether a bapt- someone who has been baptized and is a believer or been, you know, uh, reborn in the spirit can be possessed. And uh, most of the time they say no, that once you belong to Christ, you you cannot be possessed. And uh, my my feeling from, again, this, this is impressionistic, but my feeling from the nature of the exorcism ministry in Madagascar is that our Western idea of possession, which is probably way too formed by the movie The Exorcist, is like one person, again, making this deliberate alliance with an evil spirit and and giving themselves up to them. And I think M. Scott Peck's book, People of the Lie, moves more along that lines. But what I think more of what the exorcism ministry in Madagascar is doing is recognizing that in that very harsh, poor, corrupt world that they live in, people are just constantly afflicted. Like life itself is just a real battle to get through. And they return to the Tubies and to the exorcism ministry again and again, not not only because of their own sin and not primarily because they have forged an alliance with an evil spirit, but just because they suffer affliction and the church is continually lifting that burden off of them and placing it on Jesus instead. And I think that might be more helpful in thinking about what kind of of ministry would be more more useful for more people. Uh, not that there isn't a place for confronting the the deliberate and sinful alliances with evil, but I think there's probably a lot more of the affliction kind and the sin that comes out of badly managing affliction. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think that's great, Sarah. Very helpful. And I think what that implies is a distinction between the cursors and the accursed, between those who deal with the occult forces in order to afflict others. That's the cursors active. And those whom they afflict, the afflicted, uh, those who are cursed by the cursors, uh, something along those lines. And if Nini Lava then spent most of her ministry trying to lift the burden from the afflicted, from those who felt themselves demonically oppressed, accursed, and so forth, uh, that's certainly putting uh, the emphasis on healing in the proper place, where it's quite a different story with someone who's made a Faustian bargain with the devil for the purposes of self-aggrandizement and power over others for domination. 
It may be why we have been slow to realize the need for healing and deliverance ministry because we have so overdetermined it as the Faustian bargain, like you said, from Goethe, you know, and and the exorcist that we we think either you've made a deal with the devil or you're fine. (laughs) And most people have not made a deal with the devil, but most people are also not fine. So there's there's lots of of room for um, ministry of, of healing and deliverance in between those two places. Okay, have we beaten the demons to death here? Can we move on? <laughs> I, I think we're still awaiting that final victory. Um, we're, we're close to the end of time here, and we had a bunch of other topics we could have talked, but I think I'd like to end this out by talking about emergent offices of ministry. Is that okay with you? Okay, all right, go ahead. Okay, so to, to round out our hour, I think we'll talk about the emergent offices of ministry. This is something else I, I found very intriguing about my time in Madagascar, but I've learned from looking at other um, newer mission locations around the world and looking at mission studies, it seems that almost without fail, wherever the church has gone in the past couple hundred years to plant itself afresh, even bringing with it the old, you know, so-called three-fold office of ministry of, of bishop priest, pastor, presbyter, and deacon, that there are basically four offices that spontaneously arise. And I'm, I'm using this term office uh, loosely. I don't want it to be as as uh, overdetermined as the threefold office. But I also think the fact that these four consistently pop up is itself um, interesting and a, a worthy um, <clears throat> A worthy focus of our attention. And those four are evangelist, catechist, exorcist, and Bible woman. Uh, so let me just say a quick word about each of them. The evangelist is the is the local person who is the, the native, uh, cultural native and language native, who can take what the missionaries bring and go around and proclaim it for the first time to people who have never heard it before. They are the, the it, it, very real, really, very truly like the first apostles were, is taking the first news of the place. And they are almost always more effective because they they get more where the people's need are, where to connect with them, and of course, because of the language advantage. Then there is the catechist. So this is the person who instructs people, either preparing them for baptism or continues to instruct them after baptism. Again, this is for these are for people who are not hearing it for the first time, but are farther in. And this tends these are all lay offices unless one considers that a contradiction in terms, Um, but uh, somebody who, again, who can understand more where the ordinary people are coming from and therefore bring them into a deeper understanding of the faith. Then there is the exorcist, which, of course, we've just heard very dramatic accounts of from Madagascar, but it's not just Madagascar. It is all over Africa and Asia, probably Latin America, though I don't know as well. Um, There is just spontaneously arise a sense that we need to kick out the evil spirits, and clearly that's what Jesus did, so we should too. So exorcist arises. Um, it, It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in the West. I believe that in the Catholic Church, every diocese has a, a priest who is trained as an exorcist. But it seems in these em- mission settings, it's more often um, lay people and big teams, not like one specialist in the diocese. And finally, Bible woman. <laughs> that isn't necessarily the name I would have chosen, but that's the one that seems to stick. And this reflects the cultural reality that very often 
women are kept apart, are not do not lead public lives, and therefore um, male missionaries cannot reach them, but often even female foreign missionaries cannot reach them. And so Bible women may not even be literate, but like Nani Lava, commit large parts of scripture to memory, and then in women within women's communities are able to instruct other women in the content of the Bible. And this seems, again, to be a recognized reality across all developing mission churches. What is striking to me, and this is where I want to interface it with Neni Lava's story, is the fact that indeed all of these offices, um, maybe not Bible women so much, I'm, uh, though they do have, uh, now the Malagasy Lutheran Church has a recognized office called woman theologian. They do not ordain women at present, but they do have women theologians who even wear clerical shirts and collars. Um, so that is maybe their adaptation from Bible woman. Um, but they have evangelists and catechists and definitely lots and lots of exorcists. And what has struck me, Dad, in reflecting on the fact that these arise is that essentially the old threefold office of ministry, whatever it was at the beginning, is essentially an inward on the church focused office. However much we might like to say that um, deacons and priests and, and bishops are supposed to be speaking to the world, fundamentally their job is to look after the already existing Christian community. And what I see happening is in these very new mission settings is that the church spontaneously generates again and again these new offices of ministry that are really directed outward. It's towards getting people acquainted with the gospel for the first time, preparing them for their baptism, getting them free of the evil spirits, and in the the Bible woman case, bringing the gospel, the, the Bible content to a place that it cannot otherwise reach. Now, I know, I think you you are a little fonder of the threefold office than I am, so I don't know if that is, uh, I, I'm curious how you react to this well, proposal. Well, I think what, you, what you're describing are less offices than functions. Uh, and and that's not to that's not to you know denigrate them at all. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Wherever the church is in mission uh, spiritually with the gospel uh, to a culture which is uh, strange to it, let's just put it in those terms. Uh, you're right. These functions are uh, elicited, and they they are needs that uh, must be filled. And uh, so these uh, uh, jobs, these roles, spontaneously generate. Uh, now, the threefold office of uh, bishop, presbyter, and deacon, you're right, uh, uh, has some roots in the original mission situation of the church, uh, but it, it was stabilized into this threefold form uh, for the maintenance through time of an existing Christian community so that it persists uh, through time. And that's, whereas what you're talking about is an event where the gospel in, is creating the church as it extends uh, through space, uh, through into new places where it's not been before. So I would make the distinction between the two that way. But I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and this is where, I, going back to my remark at the beginning of the episode, when I spoke to pastors who are discouraged and feeling defeated and so forth, uh, how important it would be for us to recognize that we too are in a post-Christendom missiological situation, and that uh, so much of the current generation 
uh, is absolutely alienated from Christianity, has no idea what it genuinely is. Their heads are full of hostile images and propaganda. Uh, and of course, there's a whole lot of toxic Christianity that gives uh, these alienated people uh, fat targets for their hostile barbs. So there's an awful lot of work that needs to be done uh, along these lines uh, that you just said of healers, catechists, evangelists, and well, Bible women. I'm not sure how we would translate that into our context. What do you think? I think considering how unhappy relations between the sexes are, there might be something to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, but, you know, we, we have most churches tend to have women's ministries. So there's something like that. I guess, you know, you, you made a, a contrast between the the ongoing maintenance of the church's institution and then these what I've been calling emergent offices are events. But to me, that is exactly the, the argument I've been making since last year, that gospel and revival are correlative realities that need each other. And so it wouldn't be like the these emergent offices or revival are temporary and then need to give way to the church, which is, you know, the real thing. I think what I, I've learned from these kind of places is that unless you have this tension, then what happens is the revival gets crazy and the church gets authoritarian. <laughs> and yeah. what's so remarkable about the Malagasy example is how it managed to avoid both of those pitfalls. And so you're right, you know, we we so badly need a, a new kind of expression or commending commendation or evangelism, but I think there there are different kind of charisms towards upbuilding and maintaining the church of the already Christian and then reaching out to those who are on the outside. And I think pastors are expected to be both and to be great at both, and it's almost impossible to be great at both. And I think if we had more explicit appreciation for emergent offices for missionary settings and then recognize we're always in a mission setting, then I think this could relieve a lot of the unjust burden on pastors, but also open up a lot more opportunities for lay ministry that are all just, I mean, all the energy is funneled into getting people to become pastors. And of course, you need to have pastors. And you and I are pastors. It's not like we're opposed to the office. But there's so many other places to serve. I think more conscious recognition of those ways. Um, you know, maybe we don't want to start with exorcist, but surely evangelists and catechists um, and healer would be great places to start. The, I think the difficulty, Sarah, with our the Lutheran tradition is that the Reformation, the 16th century Reformation, was an attempt to renew and reinvigorate the political model of Christendom. Uh, and so it, it in its own way, uh, reinforced the model of church institution and maintenance uh, after uh, it succeeded in the territories that accepted the Reformation. And I think as a result, most of our lay people in the Lutheran tradition think of their ministry actually as their their jobs, their 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 vocations in the world, and so they're busy being a good uh, baker, candlestick maker, whatever that old poem was, you know, uh, uh, right? They're, they're very being very good at serving society by being good at and honorable in their secular vocations. So the whole notion that there should be lay ministries in the church, out of the church, evangelizing, 
the world in this fulsome way that you've described is really a pretty foreign notion to the magisterial reformation, let alone to the Catholic churches. And I, I think as, um, as the world of work has gotten very weird and so unsatisfying that that's no longer a very satisfactory answer. Well, that I think is a lot of food for, for further, further explanation, but I think we should wrap up this episode now. And next time on the show, I think we're talking about American revivalism. Is that right? Yeah, we want to talk about toxic Christianity in America and how the American revivalism went wrong and uh, how it might possibly, possibly, possibly be righted. So we're basically going from the sublime with Nani Lava to the ridiculous with America. listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show. Music